Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. We continue on with the class of 1999 with one of the more unusual films of the year, or at least that's what the uh, filmmaker would have you believe. And to a certain extent, he's not wrong, actually, uh, seeing as though the filmmaker's David Lynch, the studio was Disney, and the movie was The Straight Story. Uh, joining me with to uh, discuss it, we've discussed David Lynch before, as well as the work of Ed Wood, and I'm pleased to be joined once again by Matthew Timms. Thank you very much. Hello. Thank you for having me. I I loved when I was doing research for this movie that David Lynch called his most experimental film. You know, I was going to bring that up to you because <laughs> on a certain level, I think I get it. And on a certain level, I, do I don't kind of, understand it at all. I, I, I'm I kind of with you where I do get I I think I get it as well. Um, and I think the reason I would say that I think he's probably onto something is because it feels like in telling the story of Alvin Strait as he rides a riding lawnmower across country to see his brother after a number of years. I feel like a lot of the storytelling, um, it's a pretty straightforward narrative. Uh, a lot of the storytelling and a lot of the momentum of it, I think, is left to Freddie Francis, the cinematographer, and Angelo Balamente, the composer. I I feel like David Lynch. I feel like this is a film where David Lynch sort of loosened his grip on his control as far as telling the story, and sort of let them tell the story for him. And he sort of he he sort of got out of the way. I feel like. I mean, part of it is because of how straightforward the narrative is it's not requiring the intellect and the complexity that most of his movies rely on and i think that's probably one of the reasons why i think uh he would probably say that but it's also probably one of the it's also something that uh i i really gravitated to on the rewatch for this Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the first time I saw it, I viewed it largely as a curiosity. And on a certain level, I still do, because mm-hmm. uh, my my stock line is that the most surreal thing I've ever seen is the words, Walt Disney Pictures presents a film by David Lynch. <laughs> and that's true, but it's also uh, not entirely fair to the film, Yeah, you know, because it's a really good one, and uh, dismissing it as a joke is not entirely right. Mm-hmm. But um, there's something about the very straightforward forward nature of it and the fact that it doesn't have a lot of his style in it that makes it kind of unique. And mm-hmm. I love that you can still see hints of it. You still got yeah. the shots of the road, even though it's during the daytime, and you've still got some of that small-town weirdness. Mm-hmm. You've still got uh, some of that kind of thing happening, but it's uh, done in a very different kind of context. Yeah. As a first-time viewer, I would like to contribute that 
It does still require the patience of a David Lynch movie. Yes. And for those of you uh, who remember our Edward episode, this is my wife, Bailey. She's come mostly to <laughs> snark and heckle. Um, I also have the attention span of a squirrel on speed, so any movie <laughs> does require a bit of focus for me to pay attention to, mm. especially if it's slow. And I, I love the scenery in this movie. I love the fact that nothing really bad happens to our characters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially with the setups for it. Mm-hmm. Like, there are setups for that girl to rob him. There are setups for all these bad things that would typically happen in a road movie. And none of it does. It does not lynch. It does not lynch at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, but, it, he, but he does have his touches to it, but it's yeah. It's a Lynch movie in the sense that it requires a certain amount of patience. Mm-hmm. But everything else, I could watch this on ABC on a at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night in the 90s. It would have happened. Well, <laughs> and the thing of, uh, about that that's interesting, and I hadn't I didn't think about it till we watched it together, is that there are so many things that in a different movie the plot would have turned very differently. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, it's actually kind of fascinating. Uh, how this narrative is devised because it's not at all what you expect. There yeah. are so many times where excuse me, you think something's going to go desperately wrong and it doesn't. And But there's still that tension there. Like mm-hmm. You see the amount of money he's got with him and you know that that's not all the money he has in the world, but he's living on a fixed income, so that, that money means a lot to him. Yeah. And I love that there's a kind of a tension there that isn't external in the way that most narratives are. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, one thing that fascinated me, and I was just thinking about this yesterday, um, so many things use that um, Joseph Campbell kind of structure, the hero thing, and uh, there's so many movies where you can just uh, follow it as the movie's going along. You're like, okay, here is where the hero is presented with his call to action, here's where he ignores it, says yeah. I don't want to, blah, 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 blah. And even, you know, uh, other really wonderful movies ha- follow that pattern so closely. And this movie kind of doesn't at all. Mm-hmm. Like, he decides, okay, I'm going to go see my brother. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. And then he figures out how. And everyone tells him not to, mm-hmm. and he keeps going. Yeah. And things get in his way, and he keeps pushing forward. And mm-hmm. it doesn't follow that kind of structure at all. It is not the hero's journey. I just realized this is a sports movie. <laughs> this is totally an underdog <laughs> It follows those beats perfect. I didn't think like of it in those terms. you think he's going to fail, you think he's going to fail, and he huh. pulls through and wins in the end. This is David Lynch's sports movie. Huh. Well, I'll be damned. <laughs> and it's funny because of the fact that I, I actually just, a couple of days ago, I posted my uh, podcast for Any Given Sunday, the Oliver Stone football movie from 99, and that that's a movie that is that is very much a sports movie, but it doesn't that one I and see I feel like to a certain extent that one sort of it it doesn't adhere to to it tries to adhere to the sports genre, but at the same time it feels like it's above it it's almost, in a lot of ways too. It's only given Sunday is almost more of. Um... Action movie isn't the right word, but like an intrigue movie. Yeah. Like you're not quite sure what what's going to happen here. You know there's going to be a turn. I've seen the movie once and I remember that much. So yeah. The, my commentary is done at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen four sports movies. One of them is Rudy. 
Okay, Sandlot, movie. yeah. Okay, so you're and up I to five. Under duress. <laughs> yeah. I had um I have a brother and sister who are fifteen and seventeen years younger than me respectively. And the Sandlot came out around Right. Uh, it was, was it late nineties? Sandlot came out. It was out? early nineties. Yeah. Well it was it was beyond like my reach when it right. came out. But for them mm-hmm. it was perfect. So if I think about Sandlot and Street Story, if I think <laughs> of the structure here. They're, they're, the enemy is time, so that's the mm-hmm. big dog. Um, and then the naysayers, the whole neighborhood of kids. Yeah. Yep, yep, I'm just, I'm down, this is, this is a David Lynch's short story. Okay. Actually, that's a really interesting take on it. It, it is. Um, and I, I can completely, I, I can completely appreciate where that's coming from because the, the, like, like you said, one of the things that's interesting about this is there's so many opportunities for adversity to hit Alvin on this journey, and it never really does. He does come close at times, but the biggest personal adversity they feel deals with is the very beginning when he trip when he falls and hurts his hip, and then he has to start. Which means he Walking can't with get a cane. on the team, coach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, there's another thing about this movie that fascinates me, and um, I love how low-key the score is. Yes. Because it, it's lovely, it has some beautiful melodies, mm-hmm. but I love that it doesn't have the big soaring strings that you expect from this kind of story. I, I think that's one of the things where I, I think... And if they had gotten anybody, any other filmmaker, it's no doubt how that will have been. And I think having David Lynch direct it because of the fact that you you're going to get you're going to get a very you're going to get very strong attention to detail in the character work in addition to the visuals. And then you bring in, by virtue of him making the movie, you bring in his composer, poser, Badalamente, who is, I mean, you know, is certainly not subtle in so many of his work. But at the same time, you think about, you, you think about especially early on in Twin Peaks, like there's some very, there's some very low key, like you said, very low key. Um, compositions at work in Twin Peaks and in it would be Blue Velvet as well. Earthy because they're so electronic, but yeah. there's a certain that kind of vibe to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I love you know that if let's say Spielberg had made Straight Story, which yeah. would have been great, would have been great. And yeah, he would have brought in John Williams. There would have been that great soaring score with yeah. lots which of strings. Which leads to the thought that I'm having and, right now. I want to rewatch Straight Story with subtitles. And the Jurassic Park score. Well, and the thing is, that would have been a great movie. And it would have. Sure I would have loved it too. Yeah. But there's something about the fact that those choices weren't made makes me mm-hmm. like this a little bit more. 
because it's yeah. so different from what you anticipate. Oh yeah. And and no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, there the easiest way this could have been the the cheesy way would have been if Disney had just gone with a filmmaker that they had worked with before who had done some hokey TV movie or something like that for them before and gone, okay, you you you're gonna make the movie. The fact that it is David Lynch and it's it's interesting that the two movies that sort of stand even though one definitely stands resolutely within his previous within his larger filmography, the two movies of his that kind of stand just on the outside of his filmography are the straight story and the elephant story. And both of them are true and based on true stories. And what's interesting about this is the more you research the true story, there's there's things they left out. Like at one yeah. point you got pneumonia and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But in general, it follows the true story way closer than most films. Were. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like they even you know filmed at his actual house, mm-hmm. and they started you know in his town. They followed the route that he used. Like yeah, there's so much about it that kind of attention to detail, like you were saying, mm-hmm. that makes it something other than. Um, in a way, it's almost more like the wrong man. Yeah, like uh, it's trying to tell the story as accurately as possible. Mm-hmm. As opposed to doing the Hollywood version and kind of taking the obvious turns that you would expect, which would be more dramatic and would have been a satisfying film yeah. too, but it's a different thing. Well, and the thing, and and you know, talking about the the beginning, I brought up the fall at oh, the yeah. beginning, and then you have the doctor's visit after that, and the thing that I it occurred to me watching the film early uh, for the to rewatch was the fact that it's like. That basically sets all of the personal stakes you have for that Alvin has oh, yeah. for the rest of the movie. On top of getting to his brother before he dies. Yeah. And it's like that's another key part of the story. Um the other more the other main character is uh his daughter, played by Sissy Spacek. Which I was so happy that she finally got in the David Lynch movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you know much about the history of those two and how they connect? No. Okay, so um, Sissy Spacek is married to Jack Fisk, who was the production right. designer oh, on yes, every right. David Lynch movie yeah. from from the beginning, from Eraserhead yeah. onwards. And so um, she was an assistant on that movie somehow. Mm. I forget exactly what her capacity was, and I should have taken a note of it before I came in. Yeah. But, um, so she was, she's been around David Lynch um, since the beginning, and at one point Lynch was married to Mary Fisk, who is Jack's sister. Mm-hmm. And so they've kind of been family this whole time. Yeah. And so it's nice that after all these years they finally got to work together. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. There's so many kind of connections throughout their careers. Like, um, Jack Fisk was the production designer on another favorite film of mine, The Phantom of the Paradise. And that's how Brian De Palma met Sissy Spacek, which led to her being in Carrie. Okay. And I don't know 100% if Carrie is what led to um, uh, having... I'm sorry, who played her mother in? I just lost it. Oh, um, uh, Pippi Laurie. Yeah, Piper Laurie. Um, yeah, Piper Laurie. I'm sorry, I just lost that, but yeah, I'm not sure if that's what led to Piper Laurie being in Twin Peaks, but there's a connection yeah. there, and I, like, I honestly d- 
do not care one way or the other about modern gossip. I don't care yeah. about who stepped out of the apartment without their engagement ring. But <laughs> I love knowing how people are connected. Like, mm -hmm. if you, like, I'm just always kind of fascinated. Like, okay, how did Chris Hardwick and Rob Zombie know each other? You know, yeah. like all these, <laughs> these people are connected in weird ways. It just mm -hmm. fascinates me. Yeah. Um, her, she, there's such a warmth to her in, in the few scenes that we see her in. And cause she doesn't go on the trip with Alvin. And that could easily have been mm -hmm. a very thankless role because yeah. um, another actor would have probably done a little too much with the ticks, mm -hmm. and uh, another actor might have been tempted to overdo it to really make a show of it. Yeah. But she played it very subtly. And mm -hmm. What you're saying is another actor may have been paid in scenery that they could chomp upon. Yes. Yeah. yes they, and they, she <laughs> did not do that. Which no. Is, I mean, for that kind of character, in general, it's really easy to ham it up and go over the mm -hmm. top, which is a disservice to the real person. Yeah. And I think she did an excellent job in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I don't know if we can quote that line from uh, from Tropic Thunder anymore. Uh, in our oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's reference to it in yeah. pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, admittedly, I mean, I it, at first her... her the vocal ticks in in particular they great on me a little yeah. bit, but again, there's such a warmth between her and Farnsworth, Richard Farnsworth in this movie, and it's it's just beautiful. And you see the the depth of her feelings for her father, and the concern that she has for him, but also a, a level of support. Yeah. Did you just get choked up a little bit, Matthew? A little, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's uh, pretty much this is this is one of those movies that could have been a disaster in the wrong hands. Yeah. Every turn of the way, because um, when you don't have those, since this is almost all character based, mm -hmm. when you don't have those character relationships, that could fall apart. And yeah. the performances are so subtle, especially Richard Farnsworth. Yeah. And so I've I've talked a lot about how I'm not particularly into um, awards. You know, I don't really care so yeah. much about uh, who wins what because there's so much politics behind it, right. so much money. Oh, yeah. But I really do think he should have won that Oscar. And that's, this is one of the few I, sticking I, points I really I, have. I, I, like, I do think... I think I probably feel that way more now re-watching the film than I have at any other point. Uh, and there were there there were ton of amazing performances this year. Uh, like there really were. That was that like all of those categories were stacked to the hill when it came to the acting categories. Um, so, but yeah, I mean Farn, Farnsworth Farnsworth is so beautiful in this movie. And if you if you take just the performance on its own, it's really staggering. But if you consider the outside facts that he had terminal cancer in his bones. Yeah. And he was partially paralyzed when he made this. Mm -hmm. The fact that he was able to soldier through and do this yeah. is astounding. Yeah. And I don't know how the Academy didn't eat that up. Yeah, I know. Like, I mean, it was... it was. I, I feel like that... If, if it were just level playing field, like no politicking, yeah. I do think he would have won. I, I think because of the fact that you had 
I I I think because of the rivalry that sort of had started the previous year between DreamWorks and Miramax, yeah. and you had American Beauty from DreamWorks, Hyder House Rules from Miramax, and then you 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 know after what happened with Saving Private Ryan versus Shakespeare in Love. I, I think that's probably... I think that played so much more into it. Now, I mean, Grant, I still think Kevin Spacey did a fantastic job in American Beauty. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would not give it to him now, though. And it's not well, because... And it's not, not because of... what we know it's, about him. It's but. not because of him. It's just because of the fact that... And, I don't, and it's because of the fact that there's so many great performances from last year, that year. Well, one of the things that I was kind of thinking about, because I was trying to think of how to connect this to the year in a larger sense as right. well, is that, um, and you pointed this out a few times in your various podcasts, that 1999 was a big year for those kinds of movies where one guy kind of tries to reclaim something, and yeah. it's the American Beauty and Fight Club and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those movies, when I think about them now, which isn't to say they're bad movies, but that aspect of it rings kind of hollow to me Mm -hmm. because these are characters that have some really enormous kind of privileges and they've had all these breaks in life and they're just chucking it all for some... Well, well, and it also boils down to the fact that they're approaching it completely wrong way do yes. i mean it's it's all completely selfish the way they approach it and it um, hurts people around them yeah. yeah but and but in this case we have a person who is very stubborn and probably mm-hmm. makes a lot of fairly poor decisions along the way because it probably would have been smarter just to take the lift when it was offered to him yes um because it's you know for i, I wrote it down actually it's a four hour 40 minute uh, 48-minute trip um, by car. Yeah. And so there's, I'm sure there's plenty of people he could have um, hired or, yeah. you know, some kind of deal he could have made because you mm-hmm. see every time he gets in trouble, people come out of the woodwork to help this guy. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing how much that, you know, that, that thing Mr. Rogers has said about looking for the helpers. Every mm-hmm. time he was down on his luck, somebody came out to help him. Yeah. And, but, you know, he was dedicated to doing it his way and people respected mm-hmm. that. And that's a very Midwest thing too. Yeah. Kind of, this guy's stubborn and we dig mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's like that, that is actually, that is actually a very, that, that is actually a really great comparison because, I mean, you know, you, you think of the performances that, of in American Beauty and Fight Club and mm-hmm. Office Space, all of these, all of these people who represent to a certain extent a particular view of masculinity trying to reclaim their personal masculinity albeit in very selfish ways whereas this guy whereas Alvin Strait represents a a a very a a very um traditional form of masculinity but at the same time he's Arguably the most sincere person of the bunch. Oh, definitely. And I would say in the end, if you take the arc of the whole movie, Office Space probably comes closest to yeah. that because in the end he does find the value in working. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's probably eh, fairly close. Mm-hmm. But he is definitely the most sincere and the most traditional. And that does sort of dovetail nicely into something I wanted to get into 
and I'm not even sure what words to use for this, but I love how uh, traditional this movie is and how, mm-hmm. I don't want to say conservative because that's got a political connotation, but I love how mm-hmm. very wholesome it is. Yeah. I no, that's that's one of the things that really uh, that I really identified with it, particularly in this mut in this rewatch. Um, I I love the fact that it is is very wholesome. Like like you said, like people people come out to help him. It's not like they're 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 not necessarily admonishing what he's trying to do. They're not. They're not saying, "Oh, why are you doing this?" They're not trying to talk it's him out of it. They're trying to help little, him. But yeah, and and, and that's one of the things that's concern, yeah. and and that's one of the things that's just so wonderful about this film is that it it and it's one of the things where it does kind of fit in that traditional Disney mold. Oh yeah, when it comes to when they cover true stories, it's like they they cover it from. You know, like you said, a, a fairly conservative manner, in in the way that you know, there's not really there. Yes, there are people who are going to sort of be against the the goal that this person is trying to accomplish, but they're not going. But by the end, they're going to be supportive of them. Oh yeah, yeah. I love how, um, I love that one scene when he's getting the mower fixed toward the end. Um, with the gentleman whose name I, I can't recall, they borrowed the phone from. You know, mm-hmm. so are you sure I can't give you a ride? Yeah. He's like, well, I respect <laughs> what you're doing. You know, yeah. there's still the <laughs> sense of you stubborn ass. I wish you would let yeah. me help you, but at the same time, he seems to understand. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of strange because it seems to get into um, a sense of masculinity that uh, existed in that age. Mm-hmm. You know? And the thing is, we're talking about a story that happened in the 90s. Yeah, 90s. It's not like it was ancient history by the time this movie was made. It was five years after yeah, it's, uh, it was made. Yeah, it's a pretty quick turnaround <laughs> yeah. for, uh, based on a true story kind of um, movie. And, and, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like... Farns, I, I agree with you about Farnsworth. I mean, he, he really should have won, won the Oscar this year. I'm I'm grateful that he was nominated. I think I I don't think I saw it until after the Oscars and all that. Um, but at the same time, it's rewatching it. God, there's such a light in his eyes. Yeah. To realize how much physical what a, pain. What a torture that must have been. He was in during the entire production. Is 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 like. I if if I were in that type of pain, I don't think I would be able to focus that much on my work. Oh yeah, I don't think that would be possible. And it's it's so beautiful what he does, the way the, his speeches, his speech about Rose's kids and what yeah. happened to them is it's heartbreaking. It is, and it's. It's probably and honestly, like we, I, I don't want to bring up the ending right now, but the fact of the matter is, I, this might be my favorite ending from ninety nine. It okay. might be my favorite ending from ninety nine. It's just such a perfect, it's such a perfect conclusion to this story. And without getting too much into it, it does that also kind of fits with the thing we were saying earlier about. Uh, another filmmaker probably doing too much when yeah. something subtle works very mm-hmm. beautifully. 
Yeah. Um, but I love how just uh, wholesome the movie is as a whole. And mm. this is going to sound weird to uh, listeners who don't know me and know my wife personally, but honestly, you know, last time we were here, we talked about Herschel Gordon-Lewis and John Waters and all this other stuff. And But at the same time, there's a part of me that really loves these kinds of wholesome films. Yeah. That really loves Frank, Frank Capra and that kind of thing. And I kind of um, wish there was a little more of that now. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite films is Ernest and Celestine. I, oh, it's a gorgeous I film. I like cute, yeah. adorable, wholesome things. But I also absolutely love and, and think Cannibal Holocaust is the greatest film ever <laughs> So. But so many, uh, so many family, it's hard to find a G-rated film these days. Almost everything. This, it, I, very few exist. Like, almost, very few exist. It's almost saw, always PG. Adam's Family, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't G. Yeah, yeah, it was PG. It was really good, yeah. but it still had a few farts and a few kind of yeah. risque things. And um, I don't think it was anything that would harm a thing, child. But I think the only thing that's G is the Disney nature stuff. I think so, I yeah. yeah. And I honestly kind of wish that some of that entertainment uh, were more present for mm-hmm. the kind of audience that want to see it. Like, I'm not a huge... Like, I was we were, recently, because we had watched Dolomite is My Name... Bailey and I were talking about Rudy Ray Moore and Tyler Perry and how kind of amazing it was that this one guy had found an audience that was really desperate for content. Yeah. But so many people didn't see... At least comedy, com- yeah. comedic content. Yeah. Because, I mean, in that film, it's highlighted very clearly that what's funny to America on the whole does not necessarily fall, and fall into a particular demographic. And I think that the G-rated family film demographic, or let me correct that, feature film, non-made for TV, not Disney or Hallmark Channel, right, does not have a niche right now. Yeah, that's that's, that's a niche that needs. To, I know what kind of movie we need to start making. <laughs> All right, yeah. Except we'll never be able to do it. Yeah, because who's going to give us money? <laughs> no, no, it's it's more. Can you keep me from writing a? Not a not scary weird. I, I don't think I can. No. <laughs> um, but um, like no, you're you're absolutely like right. Somebody, even the the big um, family films by uh, Illumination and by yeah. DreamWorks and stuff, they're essentially just pop songs and farts glued together with some kind of premise. Yeah. And a lot of them are fun. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't want to diss them completely, but they're so missing. Help a... me, God, if I see another minion. I um, but I, I, they are missing a certain wholesomeness and right. like the Hallmark Channel and things like that have those kinds of movies, but they're not as carefully made. No, a lot of them feel like they're kind of um, fast forwarding. They're the lifetime of yeah. Instead of yeah. exploitative movies, they're wholesome. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's instead of men are, men are evil, it's it's non Christians are yeah. evil. Uh, money is evil. <laughs> And yeah. the the messages are very simplistic, and it feels yeah. almost like they're kind of fast forwarding through all the character development to hit mm. specific points. Oh yeah, to admit their particular commercial break. Yeah, I mean, so I'm Kirk trying Cameron to. Gets a paycheck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm trying to think of because up until The Incredibles, the Pixar movies were ragey. Yeah. And, and then, and I think Cars was the first Cars was Ray G. I think that that sounds right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the most part, uh, since 
that first Incredibles, and for the most part, they've been Ray PG and, and for don't, for and a don't while. Don't get me wrong; like, there's some amazing things, like like Toy Story three is I still think one of the best movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Toy and Story four was yeah. really good, uh, surprisingly good, oh, yeah, shockingly for almost number four, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it. Um, you know, it had, it had no reason to be that good, but it still was. Mm-hmm. But it still, you know, um, it, it wouldn't hurt to do something a tad less, with a tad less peril, just yeah. for that kind of audience. Yeah. Or even, I, I'd even like a good moral message that is doesn't that that fall, doesn't fall into these standard tropes as of late. Right. Like, don't get me wrong, I am the biggest liberal on earth, but maybe a movie that's not about diversity or accepting others but maybe something about we should generally be good to everyone or or you should help people that are mm-hmm. down on their luck you know we don't have those movies anymore and yeah and, and straight story is very much mm-hmm. telling you giving you some distinct messages without beating you over the head with them and I yeah did, i did want to ask you since you see more movies than we do now right um, have the um, the specific Christian films uh, have those gotten any better? Or are they still kind of haphazardly done? So, so I'll, the ones that I have seen, I don't see a whole lot of them because I basically know that they're you know not they're gonna really going to appeal to me at all. Yeah. Um, I I would say the production quality has gotten better. The the writing is still very much preaching to the choir, for lack of a better word. So, Um, first for Brian's podcast, I need to tell you something, Matthew. What's that? So Matt started a new job where he goes to bed really early, and I stay up for a few hours, and I have been watching Kirk Cameron movies after he's gone to bed. Oh, this is an exclusive. Yeah. Wow. Um, This is... I need something to snark upon, <laughs> and, and I don't want to snark on things that I might actually like, so I yeah. try to go directly to the enemy, and they have not gotten better. The production values haven't even really gotten better. Oh. It, it, depends on, it depends on the movie in that case. Like, for the most part, it's, yeah, it's, they're still relatively low budget, and you can tell. And they still have a hard time kind of figuring out the how to properly tell a story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, the, yeah, I mean... Like, yeah, I feel very much like the Rudy Ray Moore thing. That One of the things I love about Tyler Perry, even though I'm not fond of his films particularly, I love that he found an audience that was underserved and yeah. gave them stuff. Yeah. And I think it's really <laughs> wonderful he's been able to build this empire out of people that were largely forgotten. Right. I just wish um, that the Kirk Cameron movies and things, I wish they were a little less preachy and a little more thoughtful and a little more careful. Oh, yeah, and I, I've had a discussion about this with a friend of mine um, on his his radio show, actually, over a year and a half ago, we talked about Christian films. I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. We talked about Dogma earlier this year yeah. and The Omega Code. Um, <clears throat> I still haven't seen that one, though. That... It, it's it's wonderful. You can find it on YouTube. Ah, okay. For absolutely free. That oh, some of my tells you ever. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, I I'd be very curious to hear what you have to say about that. <laughs> um, so and and the thing that we and he he's somebody he he's 
somebody of faith. He's he's mm-hmm. he's basically liberal, but I mean he he was he he was raised in the you know southern you know southern religious experience and and one of the things that we talked about was the fact that it's like that this whole the the christian films that get made now basically fall into they're they're sort of another marketing tool for christians as opposed to a storytelling device for filmmakers and uh that's you know that that's basically what they kind of boil down to and i i think he has a very valid point there um and you know we're we're all, we're bringing this up because of the fact that we're talking about uh we're we're talking about straight story and it's it's funny because i can see i can see a christian filmmaker getting this getting his hands on this film and just completely mucking it up in every way, shape, or form. Well, turning it into the light of Jesus leads him (laughs) down this path. Yeah. And, 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 oh, maybe there's a scene where you see a subtle, something move subtly so that he ends up being injured or breaking the, to fall into the right people. Um, uh, Maybe there's a footprint scene, you know. um, But what I love about this movie is that it's there. Like the Mm -hmm. idea that this is a man of faith is uh, a part of the story and it's a part of what seems to drive him. It's not a hammer. Yeah, it's not a hammer over your head. It's very simple. It's very, um, like he mentions uh, the the preacher helping him with his drinking problem. Yeah. Uh, There's little hints of it, but it's. It's almost like it's there if you want to find it, but it's not. Uh, it doesn't beat you over the head, and it isn't insulting. And I, right. I find like a lot of those. I I love that these audiences have something they can rally around and enjoy, but mm-hmm. I wish it were a little more opening to outsiders. Yeah. Well, I feel now this is what confuses me about the latest fate of evangelical films, if we're gonna call it, you know, fate is fate. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Evangelical films. Um, when I was in the church, which was many many years ago. Our goal was to get more in the fold. Yeah. And it seems like these movies aren't so much about saying how great God is and you should come join, but more kind of like trying to advertise to the people who've already purchased it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it seems to me like that, that, that doesn't make sense because these, you know, as it said earlier, these are marketing tools. Um, you should be marketing to my audience. You should you should have a, a cancer survivor that finds God because she was alone all the time. I might actually fall for that because I'm a cancer survivor <laughs> who was alone. Yeah. You know, it seems so much like the the audience for wholesome film could be so much bigger if they weren't just trying to play the hits. Right. Like I, I love the idea that there is one David Lynch movie that you can show to everyone in your family. Yeah. Like you could yeah. show from age five onwards. You've met mm-hmm. my family. I could show them a racer hat. They'll get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of them. I, 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 but I wouldn't show that to kids at all. Oh, no, that would be no, 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 no. that would that would be traumatizing. Well, that's why um, she wants to because she hates <laughs> some of her family. But but um, but no, I mean you're 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 <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well, I mean, and you're absolutely right about uh, Christian films, and it's it's one of the most maddening things about them because of the fact that it's like 
all they all they're doing is basically they're they're selling the they're selling the message for people who have already bought it. Patting each patting each other people on the back. Saying, yeah. Hey guys, we're in this club. We did good. Look mm-hmm. how bad bad it is if you don't belong. Yeah. Well, and I oh don't. Oh God, they're every girl in high school. <laughs> every girl. Oh, I, I, I you know uh, something that I said to you kind of privately recently was. I don't want to get too into politics because we're in sort of an age where if we start, we're never going to talk about anything yeah. else. But it does seem like that's a kind of a pervasive thing in general where a lot of people seem to want to talk about how good and pure their group is and how good they are in their group, but they don't really seem that interested in roping in outsiders right. and making others feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, would that be a fair thing to say without uh, calling I think that's a, people? I, I think that's a fairly accurate depiction let's, let's of the times this, let's put this more in my in my they are vampires not zombies okay <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to put it more in bailey's terms yeah these, they're being vampires they're not being zombies zombies mm-hmm. are everybody and they're tasty brains <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah there's something um that i i feel like there's uh a good wholesome quality missing from and I, I think I wanted to kind of pivot back, just bring us back to the movie right. more. That it's at first the idea of David Lynch doing this movie sounds insane yeah. until you really get into it, and then you realize that he's the perfect person because this is very much the area he grew up. This is I yeah. mean, he was from Montana. This is very much mm-hmm. the kind of uh, people he knew, mm-hmm. the kind of family he had. Uh, he has a respect for that. And yeah. Dude's an Eagle Scout for uh, crying out loud. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... And, <laughs> and I have to be honest with you... Eagle well, Scouts are the best kind of people. Yes, they are. And there's enough in this room to contest to that, yeah. Yep. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, in my personal life, I've, um, because of political reasons, I've distanced myself from the Scouts since yeah. I got that. But I miss a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I miss that kind of connection. I miss that kind of group. Yeah. I miss being out in the woods and learning about nature. Mm-hmm. And like the, there were so many things in the movie that reminded me of, oh, yeah, this is why that was important to me. And I want to try to reconnect to that part of myself. And I think to a certain extent, I mean, I and once if you if you've ever watched or listened to Lynch talk and. I mean, even even watching the uh, the art life, yeah. the documentary that came out a couple of years ago, you kind of understand that he is the type. I I understand why he wanted to make this movie. I understand why he wanted to make this movie. I also understand why he likes making movies like Mohan Drive and Inland yeah. Empire. Um, this is it. I think this is a very it's a very interesting itch for him to scratch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, this was... Uh, actually, I don't know if David Lynch understood this at the time, but this was apparently done very purposefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producer and co-writer, Mary Sweeney, was his longtime editor. Yeah. And she has said in interviews that she was intentionally looking for projects to send him that did highlight that side of him. Yeah. So it was... I won't say calculated, but it was definitely on somebody's mind right. that we want to show this aspect of things more. Mm-hmm. And one of the, a lot of the critical response of the movie was very positive 
partially for that reason, because mm-hmm. uh, they were coming off of Lost Highway, and some people were saying, oh, that movie's tried too hard to be cool, and this and yeah. that. And then um, they see this, and they see it as a breath of fresh air. And yeah. And and the thing is, it's like, I, I think, th- you know, what we were talking about as far as the ideas of, you know, portraits of masculinity that we were talking about oh, yeah. from this year, I think that's kind of how it fits into the year of 1999, but also fits in to that year because of the fact that it's it's a filmmaker taking a swing that people don't necessarily associate with him. Oh, yeah. And I think that's that's one of the more exciting things about this movie, too, is that it really does have... It has Lynch completely confident enough in his craft to do something that's like, okay, I'm. this is something that really means something to me. I'm interested in this story. I can make this interesting for somebody. And I like that it does have a, a couple of touches of weirdness. Yeah. There's a little bit of that, the small town weirdness. There's like the scene with the deer that I yeah. love. Um, I would even say the scene with the brothers oh, yeah, yeah. for fixing the lawnmower, and that's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Uh, the way the way Alvin, you know, gets them to, you know, sort of lower their prices. Very direct like, and very honest. Yeah, like how much of that was working and how much of that was fighting. And yeah. and the thing is, the thing that's great about that scene is the fact that it's it's. It it seems like a very conventionally comedic scene until you realize that he's just using simple logic. And also and... the fact that they were real brothers, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. Well, um, and what I, I will say, when earlier in the film they say the Olsen twins, I was thinking a whole different crossover <laughs> that I was not expecting. A very 90s thing to think, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm... <laughs> um... But um, I love that, uh, and also I can imagine after uh, Firewalk with Me did not do terribly well and Lost Highway got mixed reviews, I can imagine that this was a big confidence booster. Yeah, um, you know because it did get uh, a standing ovation at Cannes, and, mm-hmm. um, even though it was not, it made I think I think the gross was like double the budget, but it, so it wasn't a huge hit. Yeah. But it, it definitely that's got definitely a lot of respect. Not, that's not the definition of a huge hit if it <laughs> didn't make money. Yeah. That, that's, that's the opposite. Yeah. Like it, um, but you know, it, it was well received by critics and which mm-hmm. are the audiences that did see it respected it and seemed to yeah. like it. So um, it must have been very good um, to mm-hmm. have that come along at the time it did. I'm oh yeah. Our response for our movie when our movie costs more than it brings in. <laughs> I was preparing for oh. the. <laughs> oh, we we've got our responses already. Like it's it's finding its audience. Yeah. It's, um, you know, maybe just some people didn't get the concept. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, but I, I, I want to point out that I, you know, you know me, Brian knows me a little. Uh, um, I am not a wholesome movie person. <laughs> no, really. Like I, I love kids movies, um, specifically when I'm ill because I need I need that comfort. But I did enjoy this movie mm-hmm. so much, 
because it reminded me of how people were where I grew up. Right. There was this kindness and this sweetness, and there is this one scene that hit me. It's the husband and wife talking about, well, it's, it's going to take them three weeks to get to Blake. He's like, there's a, there's a lot of hills going on. And the wife's just sitting there going, mm-hmm. She knows exactly what he's about to ask. Yeah. She's letting this, she's letting this build <laughs> up because he needs to justify it. Yeah. And, and as a couple, Matt and I have that too. Yeah. Where I will be sitting there going, you know, Plankety Plank sure has had a tough Christmas and you know, they've got kids and, <laughs> and, and this season's just been so rough on them and, and he's just waiting for me to say, would you mind if I gave him 50 bucks, you know? Yeah. Uh, he, but, but I can see the roles reversed right there. Right, definitely. For Matt's, but it, it was, the film reminded me a lot of, you know, ready, ready for a unique concept, the human experience. Whereas a lot of the wholesome films even don't have that homespun yeah. reality to them. Like, one of the things I like about not having so many bad things happen is that's how life tends to roll, too. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily get rolled by the homeless girl. You don't necessarily get taken by the, the repairman. Yeah. You know, this film was a little more realistic in its sweetness. But at the same time, it didn't shy away from the fact that there were massive challenges facing him. Yeah. And, um, yeah. like, there were so many times where we were watching it going, like, oh, oh no. but is, that, is that all the money he has in the world? Is that yeah. the problem? Is he, is he's not going to die, is he? No, no, his mm -hmm. brother's not yeah, going to die. Yeah, my, my first, know, like, well, my first comment was, he going to die by the end of this, isn't he, Matt? <laughs> I'm sitting, like, I'm asking him, is his brother dead? When we get there, is his brother dead? And Matt's like, no, I'm not, I can't tell you what's going to happen. Yeah. Like, I need to know. <laughs> Pete can't be hurt. And, and the truth <laughs> is that in real life, uh, um, Alvin Strait lived, I believe, three years after that. Event. Yeah, so, two, three years, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, came out pretty good. I, I, and, you know, you, you, you bring up, uh, the fact that this this movie feels very realistic, and I I think that's one of the things that's so wonderful about it is that it's very real. It's very it's very honest about life and very true to life. I like and that, I like that Alvin's a bit of a philosopher, but it doesn't yeah. ever feel put upon. It and it's it's sort of that homespun you know wisdom. Yeah. But he doesn't necessarily look at it that way. He he he's not he's not trying to philosophize for the sake of hearing his own voice and yeah. here, let me impart wisdom on you. It's like let me just tell you about my life. Well, and one thing that's very frustrating about media in general is there's a lot of times where you want characters to have adversity so they have something to do. Yeah. But they also like pretty much any TV show, um, any drama, they uh, might have money troubles, but they're living in this million dollar house, right? And they have <laughs> really fancy clothes yeah. that we could never afford. And what I call the Friends effect. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, and even like we watched a lot of Pretty Little Liars in the last year, and it's it's a fun show, but there's you know I can't take it seriously when yeah. she's got these Gucci handbags and things, and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh sure, you're having money I'm trouble. Really proud yeah. To recognize it doesn't Gucci. Yeah, yeah, I'm learning a little. I'm learning. <laughs> I mean, I don't usually recognize it, but I'm so proud of you. 
<laughs> no, well, I mean, there's that. There's one of the characters for those who have not or are waiting to watch Pretty Little Liars because I know that your huge audience is, yep. is teenage girls. Um, but there is one character who hits on hard times, and by hard times, I guess she can't afford another Gucci handbag. I, and, and, and I have that problem with a lot of films. Yeah. Um, what heart, like, I grew up poor. Like, trying to get a quarter for the school subsidized lunch was a difficulty kind of poor. Mm-hmm. And so when I see somebody saying, oh, we're, we're having hard times, I'm like, you got food? Yeah. Can you pay the rent? You good. Bye. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but this uh, movie, these characters did feel very lived in mm-hmm. and... Um, it felt very honest, and I e- every time the engine sputtered a little bit, I was nervous. Yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah, I I, I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. You know that, like it's not the end of the world, but it's another problem you don't need right now. Right. The biggest horror movie we know is seeing the check engine light. I yeah, mean, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm a person who um, has bad luck with mechanical things, just in mm-hmm. general. So. Uh, it was uh, it hit home yeah. for me because I know that feeling of okay, well I know we're gonna be able to survive if the car breaks mm. down, but that's gonna be an expense we don't need. That's gonna be stress we don't need. That's gonna be blah, right. Blah, blah, blah. And um, so knowing that Alvin is on this fixed income and uh, knowing that he's doing this because he feels like he has to mm-hmm. is you know a big personal. And the way he <coughs> and and. I think the the thing that's the most important about this is that he's he's doing it because he's he's making this trip because of the fact that he's found out that his brother is sick and he and his brother have fallen out many years ago. And I one of the things that I love about one of the things that's so wonderful about this movie and the way it's structured is that we you know, within the first 15 minutes, we know enough about Alvin Strait and his story, but we don't know entirely about who he is. Yeah. And as the film progresses, as he meets people on the road, we start to know more and more about his story, about who he is as an individual, how life has affected him as an individual. And we get more of an idea of, why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 really it's really a powerful way to tell this story in the way it's very honest. Well, uh I can't remember if I said this when we were uh talking about Ed Wood, but something about the way Alexander and Karazuski wrote that movie, mm-hmm. it's almost like you meet the adult <coughs> Ed Wood when the movie starts and you get details about his yeah. background as it goes along. And that's very much like what happens when you meet a person in real life. Yeah. You, you hear stories about their background, you hear stories about their family, their friends. You're with them for some of it, mm-hmm. but some of it you hear about. And I feel like that kind of structure helps us get to know these characters on a more intimate level because it feels like getting to know them in real life. Yeah. It is the opposite of a hot crazy girl <laughs> where you learn a lot up front and you still ignore the red flags. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the thing is, it's like Alexander and Karazuki have a gift for that. I mean, we, we just saw Dolomite is, uh, is my name yeah. together and that was another Alexander Karazuki uh, 
Krasuski uh, biopic. Same kind of structure. It's it's the same thing, and I mean, People versus Larry Flynn's kind of along the same lines. Man on the Moon is <laughs> the kind of same along the same lines, and straight stories. And even I would say the Elephant Man is sort of similar in that vein. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, you start off with John Merrick, you know how he looks, yeah. and then you get to know the individual. And the layers kind of come. Yeah. As it goes along. Oh, yeah. So no. <laughs> no. No, not at all. That's what I bring to this podcast is the occasional really bad joke. <laughs> um, we should have a drummer. To... I, I, I do need a drummer. Yeah. But I, I do agree that getting to know these characters is worth the whole price of admission. Mm-hmm. Getting to learn them that I, I had dreams. I, I have uh, weird dreams in general about anything I watch before I go to bed. I sleep for Futurama. We're not going to go with those things. <laughs> but I dreamt about the character I call Pete. His name is Pete. I refuse to accept any other name. But I I had dreams about him, and it was organic. It felt like somebody yeah. I knew that I had met that just popped up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think... There's something, um, I don't even know how to say it, but there's it, it does feel almost like a sense of family. Yeah. And that is one thing that I've noticed among filmmakers that I really follow and care about mm-hmm. is that they create a kind of family within the production structure. Like yeah. David Lynch uses people over and over again. And in this case, like with, um, with Sissy Spacek, he literally brought family into the yeah. movie. And... Um, the same thing with Kevin Smith and John Waters mm-hmm. and um, uh, Martin Scorsese to a large degree. Yeah, although he's had a very long career, and and, and he's he's now. expanded that family to yeah. a certain extent. I mean, he's he's starting to bring people back with uh, the Irishman and De Niro and Pesci's. I'm very excited returning. to see that. Yeah, now. I I can't wait as well. But um, I love the idea that you're sort of building this stable of people to work together and. Mm-hmm. One of the things about the film is very it's very pro family, but a lot of people don't have for various reasons they can't reach out to their family. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of build one. Like if you mm-hmm. don't have one, build it. You find people that uh you can jive with and you create a sense of uh a community and family. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw any of the pictures from when David Lynch got the Oscar at the Governor's Awards. Oh. But, you know, um, there's Isabella Rossellini yeah. and Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin sitting mm-hmm. with him. And, like, there's this small bit of his family there with him. Yeah. And I kind of love that the, these aren't people, they just work together once. Mm-hmm. And these are people that are brought into the fold and brought back time yeah. and time again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, 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 and the thing is, it's like Alvin, to a certain extent, it's like, you you kind of feel like he's he he's building he's building memories of it you you feel like he's going to remember these interactions that he has along the way to get yeah. to his brother for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um and people are gonna remember him. Yeah. And it's gonna be more than just, hey, do you remember the crazy guy in the lawnmower? But it's gonna yeah. be like that's Alvin, that's our friend. Yeah, like the like the backpacking uh, girl, yeah. and you you feel like he's 
probably going to remember her for the rest of his life, and she's going to remember that interaction. And perhaps one day, you know, she's going to be sitting with her kid and telling the story about yeah. this man she met at the worst day of her life. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, that the scene at the campfire there is my favorite scene. I yeah, it's really, really marvelous and uh, beautifully played. That's the scene I paid attention to. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 definitely one of my favorite scenes in the movie as well. I. I I I can't really go past I I really the ending just killed me in this this rewatch. I you know the first time I had seen it I I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I sure, thought yeah. it was a good movie. This this particular time and I mean maybe it's because of the fact that you know I'm considerably older than I was now than I was then and I've experienced more and I have more, definitely yeah different perspectives on life as well as movies and what they're capable of. And the ending of this movie just floored me. This, the, the, it's so simple. It's so beautiful. Just the way he does it with the, the two actors. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was hoping we'd get to talk about that a little bit Yeah, because this is another example of where a different filmmaker would have turned in something that's completely satisfying, mm-hmm. but or saccharine. It would have yeah. been saccharine, or it could have been yeah, like he could yeah. have the big strings and he runs onto the porch and they hug and is. But <laughs> this is much more honest, and I love that moment where he looks at the lawnmower and kind of fe- figures out that he got here on that. Yeah, like it, you you can see the wheels turning in Santon's head, like. Yeah, and the enormity of what that means, mm-hmm. and you know maybe they're not ready to forgive each other just yet. Yeah. but he understands the depth of that and how mm-hmm. important that is. And and the the brother, as you play, you you mentioned, is played by the late great Harry Dean Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, another David Lynch, you know, another David Lynch favorite. Yeah, and um, it it's just such that that scene is just so perfectly acted by those two and you you it's it's true to who both of the characters are yeah. i mean and and you know grant that's the only scene we have of uh the brother but it's true to the ver- this the image of the brother that we carry with her with us yeah throughout what Alvin says and, you know, how Alvin talks about his brother. And I do love that there's that sort of motif of the stars that carries through the film, but you don't realize till the end why it's important. Yeah. And so a second time through, it kind of starts to, oh, okay, that's not just pretty. That has a, mm-hmm. that's a part of the thread. Yeah. Um, but there, it would be so easy to, uh, to overdo that scene. Mm-hmm. And, to make it all happen too fast. And um, that's one of the things that, since we we sort of yearn for resolution, uh, it would be very easy for them to, oh, I'm sorry. You know, oh, yeah. Tearful it, things, there, but, there's a... But that's not who they there, are. There's a horrible version of that scene oh, that yeah. Yeah. could be done so easily. And it's yeah. the, the way that it ends not with, with emotional resolution for the story that we've just experienced, but not necessarily emotional resolution for them yet. Because uh, I know in real life, 
you know, um, he was able to nurse his brother back to health. And he spent a few months there and, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were able to establish some kind of relationship for the rest of their days. But, you know, for all I know, there might have still been some bitter feelings, right. something biting at them. They might not have been able to completely reconcile. And that's OK. Yeah. Because that's the way real life works. Yeah. I had a secret fear that the way the film was going to end was the brother with a gun and shoot them. That's I, I knew the movie was too well too good and too wholesome yeah. to this point that something you know, I've I was anticipating something bad happening the entire time. Yeah. And I realized that if I directed the film, <laughs> yeah. I know how it would end. <laughs> well and, and the thing is it's like that I think that's it's a credit to Lynch that Based on his reputation, you you wonder the first time you see it, mm-hmm. where's that Lynchian turn going to be? Well, and I would argue the scene with the deer is yeah. the best example of that, and that's something I I feel very much like it. That's very much in my experience. Like I, I haven't had you know every week the same thing happen, tell, but I, tell the truth, uh, we we've had a dead animal in situation or an animal. Um, Suicidal animal situation. So yeah. about about a year ago, we um, we had gone to a fast food place to pick up some food. Taco and, Bell. And we had come, <laughs> and we were coming home, and it was midnight or one in the morning or something. Yeah. And uh, we uh, we hit a possum. The first time it was a possum. And then a week later to the day, okay. almost the exact same hour. And I want to correct, we didn't hit it. It hit us. We, uh, we were car assaulted by an armadillo. So, Two weeks in a row, same day, same time frame. Different side of the car, though. Yeah. But they were gunning for us. We won't go down that road now. Mm-hmm. At least not in the dark. Yeah. Not in the dark. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that... Um, it was a personal sympathy moment I'd never thought yeah. I'd have in a movie. <laughs> but it, it spoke so much to our experience, like, oh, yeah, that, that does happen. But yeah. it also spoke to the experience of anyone who has lived out in the sticks, because I grew up more in the sticks than yeah. you did. There was a there were spots where you knew you couldn't drive fast because a deer would run out and hit your car. I've yeah. tried everything yeah. I can. I've tried blasting <laughs> and honking the horn and and I love <laughs> I love by the way, I love that he that he takes the deer, he cooks the meat and he keeps the antlers. Like there's yeah. something about that um just that practicality that I think is marvelous. Right. Uh, it's just kind of understanding that, well, I don't want it to go to waste. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that venison was probably delicious. Yeah. Because he's just been having, like, canned hot dogs that yeah, whole time. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. can, canned hot dogs this whole time. Having real-life meat would be probably be just delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I want to speak to the economy of this character as well. He knows what he needs for the trip. He packs it accordingly. And as far as we know, as the audience of this story, he's never done anything like this before. Right. So another thing that I really appreciate is that this character does remind me of my grandfather, Mm -hmm. who would 
be able to say without having ever done this thing what needs to be done. I need yeah. this, uh, this much gas. I need mm-hmm. this much mm-hmm. food. I need yeah. And it's it's a beautiful thing that he he does this, and he de- and as far as we are aware, other than we repair, he doesn't run out of anything that he needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's no scene where he says, "Oh, I forgot to get gas." No. There's, there's no he, he is budgeted for what he needs as yeah. well. He even has a little extra money because he probably knew he'd need a repair down the road. Mm-hmm. Just and the way he haggles. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I scene, <laughs> the grabber scene is makes the best. me yeah. think that he very well knew precisely what his budget would handle. Right. And he knew when he met these twins what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's, uh, I, I think, but there's also that sense of it's obviously, uh, a parallel to him and his brother. And mm-hmm. So thematically it fits on those lines. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, without getting too into something that's too, uh, too unpleasant and too personal for such a, 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 a nice, excu- a nice discussion, uh, Bailey and I both have family members that we are estranged from for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's disheartening to know that we might not ever be able to resolve those issues. Yeah. It might not be in the cards for us. Mm-hmm. And so on a certain level, it's nice to live vicariously through them and yeah. think, okay, well at least they can, they can pull it out. Mm-hmm. They, can, uh, they can make it work. <clears throat> yeah. And there's such like that. I, I think the, like, it, it kind of makes sense because, I mean, we, we talked about, you know, we, we talked about Lynch last year. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about, you know, we, we talked about Blue Velvet, primarily Mohone Drive and, and Len Bar. And it's funny because of the fact that, like, this came in between of Lost Highway and Mohone Drive. Yeah. And it's like Lost Highway is arguably one of the films where his, his particular sensibilities for the surreal don't really work quite in the same way that we we would hope that they would. I mean, I do think they work better than I certainly remembered experiencing it in 97, but I mean, I'm more used to, I'm more familiar with Lynch now and more familiar with the way he tells stories. But I don't know if it was more as much of a technical exercise than it does a narrative. I can agree with that, yeah. Um, and then you look at Mulhone Drive, and it feels like the emotional part of the storytelling is kind of carried over. Is is sort from has carried over from the straight story, in addition to the narrative challenges that he presents himself. Well, and that kind of, um, in my mind at least, I don't know if the listener will follow this at all, but uh, makes kind of a, a, a nice way of getting into another thing I wanted to mention is that even though well, critics don't seem to talk about it much, a lot of David Lynch's career, especially now, is about aging. Yeah. And the uh, the last the third season of Twin Peaks in particular, it, it, aging is a very big part of it. Mm-hmm. And some of the characters die and some of the actors who played the character they don't die on screen but they died after the series was made before it premiered yeah um i like he doesn't shy away from that aspect of things Mm -hmm. but he also doesn't make a big neon sign proclaiming it 
Well, and and I think that's and we we talked about Farnsworth. We talked about what he was going through during the movie. The fact that he he sadly took his life uh, shortly after I think the Oscars. I believe it was. About um, that time, yeah. It was wasn't long after the Oscars. And but the thing is, it's it makes it that that's why I I think part of that is knowing that is partly why whenever you see you whenever there's a close up of him in this movie, you you see this light in his eyes, this mm-hmm. this sense of passion for life yeah. that I think comes through in. In the character, and I think that's probably Farnsworth. And the fact that he very literally gave everything of himself to this role, I like. He he probably knew like probably during the, that this would be it for him. Um, and uh, it's it's just such the fact that he he, he really gives everything he has, and he's. He he just understands. He probably it wouldn't surprise me if he experienced something like you know this story in his own life. Well, another thing that's fascinating if you look at a movie like Misery, which was just a few years before that, mm-hmm. um, and if you compare those two performances, performances and watch them back to back, I don't think you'd see much of a difference. Mm-hmm. I don't think if you were to ask you know someone who's just seeing them for the first time which one of those movies was made by a dying man, I don't think they would know. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could see, oh, yeah, he's definitely very frail there. Like, he seems to be giving the same level of commitment yeah. to the performance. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I think, you know, and I haven't seen Misery in ages, so I, I completely forgot he was in it. Um, but... That same light is there, definitely. Yeah. It's It's... It's just such a beautiful thing for this particular movie, and like we, like we talked about, there, there's such a delicacy to the entire movie. That, uh, that you know, whether apart. whether it's the cinematography, whether it comes through in the music, whether it comes through in just the writing of it, it, it's just it's it's a wonderful piece of work. I mean, and and I, this is you know, I I I I can't help but agree with you that you know yeah having having um this type of wholesome type of story being told is it is kind of important i mean especially when we look at you know i mean there's there's been a lot of talk recently at the time of this recording of you know what what really constitutes cinema what's important in yeah. cinema yeah. And uh, this this isn't this is an example of cinema at its best. I I don't I don't even know that I would put in like my top three Lynch films. I mean maybe, but it's I don't know that I would put in like. But I, the fact of the matter is, it's it's as pure an expression of what cinema is capable of at its best that I can. I, than I can think of, and I mean there were there were a lot of movies that you can put up with this. Well, and to be honest, um, if you were to um, if you were to say, you know, oftentimes history doesn't really uh, it, it's very strange about which movies it picks. Yeah, because you know, history has decided that Vertigo is 
one of the best movies ever made, but it yeah. wasn't terribly well received at the time. Oh no. Um, <laughs> and you know, an accident of fate made it so wonderful by the most famous Frank Capra film. Yeah. But you know, um, it's sort of interesting. This movie might get buried over time, or it might kind of eke its way out as a very pure thing mm -hmm. because it doesn't have the same kind of baggage that other Lynch films do. Uh, do. It doesn't have the uh, attachment to a property that Dune does. It doesn't yeah. have the um, the controversial nature of some of his other stuff. So I'd like to hope that it's going to have its own little place. Yeah. Um, and I hope that people can, can find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would be very happy if um, people who aren't film nerds would see it, too. Yeah. Because there's a very wide audience that would enjoy it. If oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, and it's funny because of the fact that, I mean, I, I feel like I could, you know, it's like I feel like I could recommend this movie to people who would not really appreciate anything else in David Lynch's <laughs> career. And they might like some they they would experience. they would really love this. Yeah. And I and that's something we talked about earlier as well. And um this this is and that's part of the reason that I wanted to make sure that this was represented in this this retrospective of nineteen ninety nine because of the fact that it is it's it's a swing by major filmmaker who is working outside of his box and he, outside his con comfort zone to a certain extent mm -hmm. yeah. in a way that you don't really expect. And, I mean, that that kind of, like, that that kind of is the type of movie that really stands out. But the thing is, if, if you look at it in terms of everything else that came out that year, like there, there's a lot of like it's easy to see why this movie sort of gets forgotten. Yeah. Even though it's from a filmmaker of Lynch's regard. And it also had, you know, Disney. Yeah. But it's also it's not animated, so Yeah. And and let's be <laughs> honest, uh Disney's live action films have had a um shaky career. Yeah. Let's I mean say if that, if yeah. you if you log on to Disney Plus you can tell that. Yeah. yeah. Um I, I hope that one day they decide to add this to Disney Plus because so it so could it. find an audience because of the fact that it's, I I think it is one of the best movies that they've put their the company's name on oh, over definitely. the past twenty years. Definitely. Um, you know that had nothing to do with you know Marvel or Pixar or Star Wars or anything it's, else. It's the only kind of like standalone thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like you said, I mean their live action is you know, shaky at best. I mean, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's delved more into the popcorn and more into uh, known properties and stuff like that after this because we had Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansions. Like, we had that period where they were trying to basically make, you know, it felt like they were trying to make every ride at Disney World oh, a... Yeah. Uh, I forget the Jungle Cruise movie next year. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, Which, it, it definitely does look fun, but... But, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like... Dis this, The fact that Disney produced this and the fact that Disney... It... it I... You, 
there's a lot of things to criticize Disney about as a company, and and quite frankly, they kind of deserve it. I mean, they they really do. Um, but being able to put money behind a filmmaker like David Lynch to tell this story when they could have, like we like I've said, they could have just gotten anybody who had made like you know film for them in the past ten. 20 years before this, and it's like, they get a good film. They they get a good film. They could probably have made some money off of it. Maybe even a great one, yeah. But I don't know that they will have gotten one as good as this is. It's not quite as heartfelt, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, and before we wrap up, because I know we're kind of heading that way, mm-hmm. one thing I did want to mention is uh, that I love that it's uh, got a little bit to the story of veterans. Mm-hmm. We, we have coincidentally just happened to watch it on Veterans Day because it was the best for our schedule. Okay. But, uh, so it was on the back of my mind, like, that uh, the the conflicts themselves were kind of long, so it's hard to pin one exact year. But yeah. we're roughly about the same distance now from Vietnam that they were from World War II yeah. at the time this story happened. And it's kind of amazing that... Um, it hasn't defined the generation quite as clearly as it did for them. Yeah. And it's astounding now that we have people who are entering adulthood who have never known the U.S. not in some kind of conflict. Yeah. But, again, it isn't quite <laughs> as much of a, a generation-defining thing. Right. It's something we kind of hide away. Well, and the thing is, I mean, I, you know, it's it's funny because of the fact that, I mean, you know, to not get too deep into it, it's like, yeah, you have the greatest generation with, uh, you know, World War II, you have the baby boomers in Vietnam, um, you know, obstinately, our generation... Uh, we didn't really have an experience like that. No, I mean, yeah. although I mean, I was I was twenty four when nine eleven happened. Yeah. And, I mean, so that was that's kind of the defining moment for some for a generation, you know, who's grown up in a post nine eleven world. And and like you said, they 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 have no concept of uh, a country. Of, yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know neither of us are veterans, but we have a number of them in our families. Yeah. And we know at least some measure of what they went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an uncle who uh, got into Agent Orange very bad in uh, mm. Vietnam, and he has a, a terrible cough and suffers psychologically from it very badly. Yeah. And I understand how, you know, one thing to kind of hint at in the movie is that for men of that generation... Drinking wasn't just a social thing, but oftentimes it was a way to silence something yeah. that they didn't understand. Because mm. the psychology, we still don't understand the effects of trauma long term, really. Yeah. And we found some ways to deal with it, but it's haphazard. At well, best. we 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 found ways to sort of define it without really researching it in, to the fullest extent. I think to a certain extent we're getting there. I I think. I, I think to a certain extent there there's there might be a bit more of a push to do that yeah. at, at least with at least with some people more than others but I mean we've certainly you know I mean we we've 
there have been ways that people come to define it. And there's more been than a, a number of good movies about war and its effects in the last couple of decades. Yeah. And, uh, a, go- a few good examinations of the class aspect of it. Mm. But, you know, if these characters existed in our time, they're exactly the people that would have gone to war, even yeah. though there isn't a draft. Because if you're in a limited economic experience, you kind of have to say, okay, well... It's this or what? Yeah. And so it it still very much rings true in a sense, mm-hmm. even though it's a different kind of battle. Yeah. I can still see, like, if you were to remake this film and set it, you know, if you were to remake this film in twenty years and set it in today's time, they could very easily be two people from Afghanistan telling that same basic yeah. story. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that that's actually. I yeah, that's actually a very good point, and uh, yeah, that's that's it's one of those things where there there are a lot of layers to this film, and I think that's that's one of the things that's so disarming about it because it's such a simple movie, but there's also so much to think about, so much to that can be parsed out of it. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. That um, it 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 works in a way that we don't necessarily see coming yeah and i i feel like uh, in a way we're maybe we're not adequately prepared to talk about it because <laughs> the more we talk about it, the more we realize there's so much in it we yeah. probably should have watched it five <laughs> more times to get prepared well i mean honestly but, it's like you could say that about so many of the movies from i mean any movie really it's like you could you know it's like you you can even even watching it like Two minutes ago, like two minutes before, like mm-hmm. if I just finished it before recording this, it's like we probably will, you know, I probably would have been like, oh my God, this is, this is, you know, and then I'll watch, and then I'll watch it again, and it's like, I wish I'd said that. Maybe we should re-record <laughs> this every year. We'll just watch it again. Yeah, we'll be like George stuff. Lucas and change his movie every time he, you know. Well, and I, I said this on Twitter today, <laughs> and I know you saw it, but um, there's a, an aspect of me that kind of likes that every time I watch Star Wars now, it's going to be a different movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I just, I've kind of given up on the originals and yeah. those ever existing <laughs> in a viable format, except for the old, you know, the VHS copy that I've kept. Yeah. And I kind of love the idea that every time I catch it on a streamer or on TV, it's going to be a slightly different movie <laughs> than it was the last time I saw it. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, but the thing is, it's like you, you and I will, pr- you know, if you and I watch this 20 years down the road, we're going to see something, we're going to, we're going to feel something different than we do now because we'll be closer to that, you know, to Alvin's age yeah, yeah and we'll live more. And, it's, and I think that's, that's, that's one of the things that's so, I think that's one of the things that's great about re-experiencing movies um, and that's one of the things that's kind of great about allowing time yeah. apart from revisits because of the fact that, you know, I, I snarky, I, I respond somewhat sarcastically to your, uh, you know, that Lucas is sort of going beyond the whole idea of, well, you know, the movie's different because you're different yeah. and all that stuff. You know, he's working on a different, you know, he's playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers uh, with that concept. But at the same time, it, it, that, is, that is, and it's something Ebert talked about. Like, he saw, 
you know, he, when he wrote about La Dolce Vita, like, he, La Dolce Vita meant something to him in 1960, and then 20 years later, he watched it, it meant something else to him, 20 years later, it meant something else to him, and it's because of his life experience. I remember uh, uh, Pendulette said something very similar about mm. uh, Last Tango in Paris. He said the first time he saw it, it was just all about sex and this beautiful right. woman. And the second time, in Brando wasn't even in the movie. And then yeah. somehow, when he sees it again ten years later, um, Brando's there and he's talking kind of crazy. And then sees it again ten years later, and all of a sudden, everything Brando says is making sense. Yeah, and, you know, and like <laughs> I can't remember exactly what he said, but it's the same kind oh, of yeah. idea that some <laughs> movies uh, are a different movie every time you see them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's not because the movie changed, it's because as long you have. It's not Star Wars, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's uh, a definitely something else you bring to it. Mm-hmm. And that actually kind of it, it goes back a little bit to something we talked about last time is that um, so many movies seem like they exist in a vacuum and uh, everything you need is there. But with David Lynch, it feels very much like what you bring to the movie changes yeah. the movie and how you perceive it and how you interpret it and how you look at it. Also, the vacuum looks at you, Sometimes. <laughs> it's definitely true of Eraserhead, if nothing else. <coughs> yeah. Um, but you there's... You need to point out the wind situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, this is, I think this is the least wind of any of his movies mm-hmm. because it's almost all outdoors. And, yeah. you know, uh, so you don't hear the... <laughs> all the time. Yeah. But, yeah, there's something about... Um, the fact that uh, it's an open circuit until you come in and mm-hmm. plug in. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I sort of hand at with my feelings on Lost Highway earlier, and certainly on that podcast we talked about a little bit, where it's like, first time I, first time I saw it, I hated it. And it's like, <laughs> I think that was literally my first David Lynch film. I don't think I had seen any of his other films. Yeah. Um, and even Blue Velvet. And so it's like, yeah, needless to say, that wasn't a good not, not first, good one to start. Yeah. But as I've watched it over the years, it's like, and even I rewatched it uh, for a movie a week this year. It's like, I okay, I I kind of see where he's coming at now, and I there are things about this movie that I really like. I um, I have a mixed feelings about Lost Highway because yeah. I feel like it feels like the first. You know, 40 minutes-ish are a little unfocused. Interesting, but still kind of... Um, mm-hmm. I don't quite know what they're going for, but, you know, the moment um, the jail cell on the switch happens, the yeah. movie really comes alive. And from there on, it's kind of amazing. But, um, but I also understand that all that stuff exists for a reason, even if I don't understand it. Right. Um, it's definitely yeah. clearly important to him, at least, even if I don't quite follow mm-hmm. it. But, you know, um, but that's a, definitely a movie I look at differently each time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if Bailey wants to talk about it too much, but uh, we were talking about uh, with the third season of Twin Peaks, it feels almost like that was uh, a Rosetta Stone for all of his works in a way. And, uh, like, it feels almost like if you figure that out, you can figure out all of them. Yeah. Like, and uh, there was a sense that um, that that season changed the way I look at some of his films too, mm-hmm. because 
I used to have this view of it, like, okay, well, this is interesting, that's interesting. But no, maybe it's a different, you know, <laughs> it, like it, uh, yeah. this new information changes the way I look at these other things. Right. Yeah. And uh, that, I, I feel like that's a pretty good place to wrap up. I think so, yeah. Um, but thank you very much for joining me once again. Uh, I know we have other ideas uh, that we've we've talked about. We haven't really started to flesh them out yet. Um, Hopefully sometime in the future, once I'm done with this exhausting... Once I'm I'm done with this exhausting project that I will never do in this content, (laughs) in this way, shape, or form again. uh, I I do like the idea of doing other years like this, but taking a a different... Well, also, well, actually, no, taking a different perspective, oh, okay. di- taking a different format of approaching them as opposed to just each episode devoted to a movie, mm-hmm. like basically like getting people to maybe talk about the year in general and sort of how that like broader and, trends and things. Yeah. Yeah. That could be so, interesting. Um, that's. Really talk about <laughs> caboodles from 1999. <laughs> but if you, anytime you need someone to speak at length on Hannibal Holocaust. Well, or, or you can talk a lot about American Pie, because you watched that a bunch of times. I can talk a lot about American Pie. <laughs> I, I worked in a movie theater at the time, so yeah. American Pie and My Best Friend's Wedding were the two movies I slipped into the most. So, yeah, I know way more about either of those. And I, I think I've watched each of those once, maybe twice, <laughs> yeah. So, and, uh, you're picking up the slack for me. I am picking up the slack for two whole movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've regularly said my favorite movie is Campbell Holocaust, but the scariest movie I've ever seen is Jesus Camp. So Which fits back <laughs> to something we were talking about earlier. Yep. <laughs> we all got tied in. Yeah. Yep. But it was a delight to be here. Mm-hmm. And chit-chat and snark. Uh, a lot of snarking. There's been some Twitter <laughs> snarking, which you can find me at moral underscore decision on Twitter. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> oh, don't worry. As soon as this episode goes live, we're going to tweet all about it. And yeah. yeah. I mean, Twitter snarking is my best skill. <laughs> if I could get paid... Yeah, that that and uh, you, you snark and you watch Go Bob Briggs, and that's pretty much your Twitter activity. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is my Twitter activity. Um, hitting on girls of horror too. That's that, that's telling that Barbara Crampton how pretty she is. Yeah, I do tell Barbara Crampton how pretty she is at least once a week. Melissa Rose too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Barbara Crampton seems to age backwards, and that fascinates me. Yes. She's like the Benjamin we Button of the horror world. Yeah. <laughs> or we're going to start a whole new show. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the uh, Sonic Cinema Podcast Class of 1999 series. Uh, thank you to Matt and Bailey for uh, joining me on this episode. It's always great to talk to them uh, about movies in general and just uh, about uh, different ideas about movies in general. It's always fun. We're not at all interesting in any other aspect. Nope. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Hit hit me up at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema for more. Uh, Come December, I'm going to be posting uh, little little videos about uh, the respective films in the Scott Walker saga in the right the lead up to the rise of Skywalker, so check that out. Um, coming up on the Class of 1999 series, this is going to get really exhausting really quickly. 
Uh, if I get all of these episodes done, uh, we've got more, including Paul Thomas Anderson, Michael Mann, uh, Harold Ramis, even. Uh, that's that's going to be a uh, fun discussion. But for for now, this is Brian Scuttle. Thank you very much for joining me at www.sonicdecima.com. Thank you.